Ada Wordsworth is a writer from London with a focus on Ukraine and other areas which have suffered under Russian imperialism, particularly Uzbekistan. She is also the co-founder and director of CARP, hopefully pronounced that correctly, a UK registered charity which supports reconstruction efforts in eastern Ukraine, particularly the Kharkiv region. She holds an undergraduate degree from UCL in Russian studies and an MST in Slavonic studies, specialising in Ukrainian from Oxford University. She's been published in Granta, the NYRB, the LRB blog in 1843, amongst other publications. And today we'll be especially focusing on the fascinating and moving article she wrote for Granta entitled The Soundscape of War. Ada, welcome to the channel. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've been following you on Twitter for a considerable amount of time, but really only recently realised the extraordinary extent of not just your academic research, but also your activism. I mean, Halfway through your degree, you paused it and moved to Ukraine, um, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Could you sort of dig into that and your sort of motivations for the extraordinary changes that have happened in your life over the last year and a half? Yeah, of course. So when when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia began in February last year, I was halfway through a master's in Slavonic studies at that point focusing on Russian literature. Um, but I woke up on the morning of the 24th to receive messages from friends in Ukraine saying what happened and tried to go to my desk and continue work on my dissertation, which was at that point on Joseph Brodsky and realized that I just couldn't do it. it. I just lost the ability to do it. It felt almost perverse to be engaging with that. Um, and so, I made a quite sudden decision that I was just going to book. My, I went onto Google Maps. I looked at the Polish border and found the nearest airport to the Polish-Ukrainian border and just booked a flight there. Um, I didn't particularly know what I was going to do. I just knew that I speak, obviously, English and also Russian. And I knew that, you know, the vast majority of refugees who would be coming out of Ukraine would be coming from the east and they would also be Russian speaking and maybe I could be helpful. Um, and my vision was kind of that I would arrive and I would find a nice Red Cross tent and I could go in and say, I speak Russian and English. Can I help? Can I help with translation? Um, but I got to the border about 10 days after the start of the war um, and there was no such tent. There was just complete chaos. There were amazing local Polish volunteers who were you know, doing their best to deal with about 50,000 people a day who were arriving, um, but no kind of organization and very, very few volunteers who could speak either Ukrainian or Russian. Um, so at that point, I put out a call out to fellow Brits who could speak Ukrainian or Russian, kind of begging them to come and help, um, because what what I was seeing on the border was just so absolutely hellish. Um, I think also I just kind of wanted company because it was kind of so awful and so isolating to kind of see all these things and just be there by myself. And so I also just wanted other people to come out to also witness it and be able to talk about it, but mostly wanted people who could come and help with dealing with this massive influx of people. Um, I also realised once I got there that whilst there were... There was a lot being put in place for the refugees. There was a refugee shelter. There were free trains being provided. There were some free buses. 
it just wasn't enough. And it also was being done in inevitably because, you know, this is not something that anyone planned for in advance, of course, um, a very haphazard way, which maybe didn't acknowledge people's particular vulnerabilities. So, for example, in this massive refugee shelter, this was still kind of COVID was still quite bad at this point and COVID was going around in it. Um, and so was norovirus and so was head lice. Um, and it was just incredibly unhygienic. And you had all these really elderly people coming out of Ukraine. And I realized that they can't go there. Um, and also realized that they can't, one, they shouldn't have to go to the refugee shelter and risk getting ill with something potentially fatal for them, especially given how few Ukrainians are vaccinated against COVID. Um, but also they can't wait for an evacuation train. People with mobility issues can't be sleeping on the floor for three days waiting for the next available train to where they need to be. Um, and so I just started to GoFundMe um, to try and raise money to book people hotel rooms and book people on to private buses and flights um, and just kind of set up something alternative. And I was really lucky that that kind of blew up and I got loads of donations and was basically able to set up a little alternative travel agency in the train station where people with very small children, people with mobility issues, um, elderly people, I was able to, with the help of these other people who came out, just get them to where they needed to be as quickly as possible. Um, at the same time, one of the people from the UK who had joined me met a woman from Kharkiv at the train station who told him about the horrors that were going on in the city at that point while it was still under siege and also about her really amazing friends who were doing humanitarian work there with an organisation called Kharkiv Aid Office. Um, he, this other person who was at the border, started a separate fundraiser for Kharkiv. Um, and after about a week, we thought, why don't we just merge these? Um, because the need clearly isn't going away at either point, but we're ending up with these frustrating situations where on one day the need might be greater in Kharkiv and they really need a shipment of food sent in, but there's no money in his fundraiser, whereas that day it also might be quite quiet at a train station. I have loads of money in my fundraiser, but I can't send that to him because people have sent it to me for a specific thing. Um, and so we just thought it would make sense to merge them. And that's what we did. And that started the Kharkiv and Shemishal project, which is HARP. Um, and the rest is kind of history. We stayed, HARP remained with a volunteer base at the Polish border for the first year of the war. We shut down operations in Poland in February of this year, just because the number of refugees had decreased a lot and also the big aid organizations had finally turned up. And so it seemed like they could deal with it at that point. Um, but from my perspective, I moved into Ukraine in from Poland in the summer and then to Kharkiv specific and at, at the start I was based in Lviv going between Kharkiv and Przemyśl um doing aid runs to Kharkiv and then going and doing volunteering in Przemyśl um, but doing all of that from a base in Lviv um but then moved to Kharkiv properly once well pretty much exactly a year ago to Monday was the anniversary of the liberation of the majority of Hakaskarblas by the Ukrainian armed forces. And that's kind of the point that I moved there and was very clear that what I wanted HARP to be doing at that point was reconstruction. Um, because, you know, providing food and doing kind of classic humanitarian aid stuff was all very well and good, but 
a lot of people were already doing that and in rural areas it just wasn't the most important thing because people had their own vegetable gardens people were pretty self-sufficient people have larders full of food um and what I actually realized it's what I wanted to do because I gave a food bag to one elderly woman in one of these villages who responded to me, thanks very much, but what use is food if I'm going to freeze to death over the winter with no windows? (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we'll get you some windows then. Um, And so that was the point pretty much exactly a year ago that we decided to shift our focus to reconstruction in the Kharkiv region um, and started making contact with people throughout the north and east of the region in deoccupied and former frontline villages. Um, And it all sort of built from there. And at this point we prepared close to 600 homes for public buildings and we provide energy support in the form of generators, portable power stations, fuel money um, and Starlinks to I think 16 villages now. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of where it all started. That's an extraordinary story. Um, dare I say, there's something very Ukrainian about it as well. I mean, the you saw a problem, you saw nobody else dealing with it, um, and you just went out and found a solution. Not only that, you've shifted it into being more, you know, I won't say backward looking, but just looking at the immediate present. You've shifted it into being very future looking and forward looking. Both of these things after a year and a half of, of, of really, you know, talking with a lot of Ukrainians, both of these things seem distinctly Ukrainian to me. So what is it about you that, that you had, you know, you felt that you needed to step in and be that problem solver? But I don't know. It's a really hard question because from my perspective, I, I mean, I think I, I have to say I was very privileged to be able to do it in that I was, I was at my university allowed me to pause my studies for a year um, and then come back and complete the final semester this summer, just gone. Um, and so I guess I, I had flexibility in that I was able to kind of pause my life and go and dedicate all my time to this. Um, and I had, you know, supportive family in me doing that. Um, but honestly, I just... I just didn't see another alternative. I I don't people always ask why why I did it. And I just don't I don't really know what else I could have done. You know, I try I tried to I tried on the morning of the 24th to sit down and write my dissertation about Brodsky and I couldn't do it. And you know, I still find that now when as our work continues, it's and you know, people say to me, Oh yeah, but are you going to like wind down, down how much time you spend doing it? And I just couldn't. I just don't have that capability this is i mean i this is the worst the worst the the war in ukraine is definitely the worst thing to have happened in my lifetime that i've been witness to i hope that it remains that i can't imagine anything worse happening but you never know as long as the russian federation continues to exist um and I, I'm more confused by how many people don't see a need to play a role in the Ukrainian victory. Um, I also very much see this as, you know, a European war and Ukraine is kind of holding the front lines for the whole of Europe. Um, there's a tank 
which is sits destroyed on the side of the road in a village about 10 kilometers northeast of Kharkiv, which was the um which is as far as the Russians were able to get make a stronghold when they were on the offensive in Kharkiv Skarblast, um, which has written on it actually misspelled in Russian, um, to Berlin. Um and I think it kind of sums it up that it's very convenient for people in the West to see this as a faraway Ukrainian war fought by people they don't know for a cause they don't fully understand, but actually had, you know, insanely brave Ukrainian men and women not stopped the Russian army at that point that they did outside Kharkiv, that tank with Tiberlin on it would have tried its best to make it all the way there. You know, they've declared their intentions. You can watch Russian propaganda channels and they're not hiding the fact that they also want to take the Baltics and they also want to take Poland. And I think Medvedev said at one point that he wanted to have a Russian Eurasia from Lisbon to Laos. And so they're not they're not making any secret of this. This isn't a kind of conspiratorial thing for me to be saying. They're very clear that this is what they want to do. Um, and so in supporting Ukrainians in their fight, it's also kind of selfish that I don't want I don't want this to happen in the UK. I don't want my family to be in this situation. And so I have to support the Ukrainians in stopping that happening. It's classic Bond villain stuff, isn't it? You know, the bad guys telling you exactly what they're going to do. They're monologuing. Um and you know, in an interview I had earlier the, earlier this morning, the interview was saying our problem is that we didn't believe them. We were hearing these words and we're thinking, yes, they're saying this, but you know, they can't really mean this, but they absolutely do. Yeah, very much so. And I think, well, yeah, I think that kind of hits nail on the head that they, Russia, does not does not hide its intentions at any point, and. It has not been hiding its intentions, you know, since 2014, when they began this war in Ukraine, they were making very clear what that they wanted to liberate the Russian speaking population of Ukraine and Europe and America didn't listen. And we allowed them to take Crimea, we allowed them to invade the Donbass. Um, and you know, and this is this is the inevitable consequence of this. And people tried to warn us. And I think to go back to your previous question about what made me go out to Ukraine, I think that's also part of it, that I had, you know, done my undergraduate in Russian, was halfway through my postgraduate in Russian. And I think once once the war started, I felt an overwhelming amount of guilt that as soon as it actually started, I'd been saying to all my friends for weeks, it's not going to happen. He's bluffing. You know, this is all mostly because all these analysts who I respected were saying exactly the same thing as I was just parroting them. Um, but when the war actually started, I felt overwhelming guilt that I had failed to recognise the obvious, that I had maintained this kind of love affair with Russia, that I had stayed so into it and so passionate about Russian culture. And then once the war started, it's like the fog cleared. And suddenly I could see that this was clearly what was going to happen. And I had just been willfully ignorant. And maybe part of the reason that I had been so insistent to everyone that the war wouldn't happen was because I didn't want it to happen, partly for completely selfish reasons, that I didn't want to think that the place that I had put, you know, my entire youth into studying could be this evil. And once it transpired that it was that evil, I wanted to just get out as soon as I possibly could. 
No, absolutely. That, that was going to be one of my questions as well. And I think it's one that, that some people have really pushed back against. Um, and that's the one I try to ask all people uh, who studied Russian or who had a passion for, for Russia. And I include my, myself in that. And that is this sense of, you know, do you feel guilt or responsibility for it? And I absolutely do. Um, I mean, I was in the position that I started watching a lot of materials again, and I'd almost forgotten my Russian before uh, 2014, uh, but then really started sort of binging and, and uh, you know, uh, I wanted to get the language up to a level where I could listen to any news report, uh, including in you know, a more colloquial ones, you know, conversations recorded with soldiers or whatever. I wanted to be able to understand everything. Um, and I absolutely thought the war was going to happen from from late 2021 uh, onwards uh and 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 by january i thought it was going to be full scale and i had absolutely no doubts uh, reading you know putin's uh mythologized um awful tawdry publication that he made his sort of historical paper it was quite clear that that was a kind of mind camp kind of moment but my guilt comes from the fact that i've been telling people for well, nigh on 20 years what kind of a scumbag he is and where this is going to end up but obviously not vociferously enough and and that's you know i didn't make it into a in, into a day job i didn't really sort of shout loudly enough so uh you know, I, I feel a certain amount of responsibility for really not, uh, you know, it's all very well telling someone in the pub, um, but it's not going to change the world in any way. But you have done things which are extraordinary in terms of changing reality. The question, well, what I will come on to in a second is the sort of impressions uh, of a liberated territory, because that's the hard bit of the conversation. And probably it's going to be my question after next but the first question again is russia is telling us something that this is a civilizational struggle and i suspect we're not listening to that uh, ukraine is struggling to come out of a post-soviet identity and a post-soviet economic system largely built on nepotism corruption and a sort of inbuilt inertia lack of innovation because that you know maintains the power vertical and, and that more autocratic system they're trying to emerge from that uh, to be distinctly ukrainian but also to adopt um much more you know transparency uh, a much more democratic uh, grassroots organic kind of system and they're struggling for that and perhaps even a lot of ukrainians are sort of naive in that they, they they also think you know, day to day, this is a local struggle. But actually, it seems to me this has huge civilizational uh, implications. And the Russians are telling us that they do not value our civilization. They don't believe in its values. They don't think we believe in its values. And they're intent on destroying it. Are we, are we listening to this yet? And are we planning accordingly to fight against it? I mean, I would, I would say... No, I don't think that people are listening. I don't think people are planning accordingly. Um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not a military expert, but I do read obsessively every piece of military analysis surrounding Ukraine and look at the war maps constantly on my always have them on my computer. Um and from my kind of slightly knowledgeable layman's perspective, 
I think that the West's actions show quite clearly that we are not listening. The fact that, you know, F-16 training is only now beginning. What if, if the West, if America and the UK knew from 2021 that there was this buildup happening on the border, why did this training not begin then? Why is everything happening so late? How many Ukrainians are having to die every single day while the West tries to performatively take so much time after each of these decisions? Because, you know, everything Ukraine asks for, the West gives them in the end. They just wait for 10,000 plus Ukrainian men and women to die before they do that. And so this is a kind of performative, performative slowness, performative consideration, as though... Russia cares how slow or fast this is. They don't care how much the West has thought about giving weapons to Ukraine. What matters to them is whether or not the weapons are given. But in the end, we've seen thus far that the West has been able to give more and more weapons to Ukraine and actually things haven't been escalated. Things are absolutely horrific in Ukraine, but the horrors are not more than they were on the first day of the full-scale invasion, partly because those horrors were so great that could it get much worse? But the the nuclear threat has not come about. And I think that it is naive to think that we can understand what would make that threat come about. The way that I perceive it is that if if the nuclear threat, you know, if if Putin is going to press that button, there's not much we can do either way. We just have to hope that that isn't the case and work on the assumption that it isn't the case and keep supporting Ukraine. And actually, maybe, you know, if we give any indication that we wouldn't react to him pressing the button, it makes it more likely that he will press that button. Um, again, this is the fundamental logic which we don't quite get at the moment, the uh, getting to the mind of the bully. Um, yeah. You have to show strength, and it's all about showing strength. And I, what people don't seem to understand is that we have shown weakness towards Russia since Chechnya, since Georgia, since Syria, since Moldova. And it clearly hasn't worked being weak towards Russia. The only time it actually seems to have started working is when we've shown some strength in Ukraine. That's the only time that territory has ever actually been able to be taken back off Russia. And so this continued kind of insistence by some people that this is provocation. What was actually provocative was us doing nothing, the West doing nothing for decades. And, you know, that, again, this is, entirely evidence-based analysis. You can look at what the West did and you can look at what continued to happen. You can see that US presidents were still going and meeting Putin during this brutal Second Chechen War. And did that help? Did that make any difference? Did that make any difference? Like the people of Chechnya who are still, who are now living under the yoke of not one, but two brutal dictators. Um, did that make any difference in the years after to, you know, the people of Syria or the people of Ukraine have, which I just don't understand how people can sustain this far into the full-scale invasion. The only consistency seems to be that the acceptance of horror simply multiplies those horrors in future years. And this is the point in the conversation where we have to turn to those horrors because you've got an extraordinary experience of seeing the not only the exodus of, of refugees in all of their misery at the start of the war, you've gone back very soon after the liberation of Kharkiv. Um, you've been directly involved in trying to revive many settlements, villages, houses, help people that remain, encourage people to, to come back, to rebuild their lives. 
And the question I've got is liberation. We think of it as a joyful moment, but from your experience, joy and horror must be sort of mingled in almost equal proportions. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that the I mean the things that I have seen in these liberated territories are hell. It's hell on earth what people have been through, and it's a continual hell. Um, the levels of destruction are one are one part of it, but there's the other level to it, which is the number of torture chambers you know people talk about you know when people want to express the horrors of this war they always bring up butcher and the massacre at butcher um and i completely see why because the massacre at butcher was you know one of the most horrific things in modern history but i think maybe it can lead people who aren't quite so engaged in ukraine to think that it was unique in some way there was Butcher and Mariupol, but that was last year. And since then, maybe the war is more conventional. Um, that's not the case. That is, you know, every single one of these villages has a torture chamber. Um, and these torture chambers are, the, the, lo the location of them, I think, is significant because they are regularly situated in schools or in houses of culture. And so in places of Ukrainian culture, in places of Ukrainian literature, of Ukrainian learning, that is where the Russians chose to place their torture chambers, um, which I think adds something to the argument that this is a cultural genocide. Um, the amount of death and destruction that has been left by the Russian forces is unthinkable. And even now, a year after the liberation, maintain you know maintains its threat um i heard a story via a starista in a village in um close to the russian border about 10 kilometers from the russian border the other day about one of his the residents of his village who um was a cow farmer before the war um his house was destroyed um, and all his cattle were systematically killed by the Russian occupiers. Um, the village was then liberated. Um, he had been living in this complete bombed out shell. And a couple of weeks ago, just thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go into the woods and I'm going to just try and build myself a shack in the woods where I can live out the rest of my life. Um, went into the woods to try and build this structure. Um, and stepped on a mine and has now lost his legs. Um, and that, you know, that happened last week. This is like ongoing. This is happening daily. This isn't getting in the news. This isn't even getting in the Ukrainian news because it's just so common now. But this is just how people are living. Um, the psychological aspect of it in terms of how it has changed people's relationships to their land or can't be understated. You know, this is a, the, the areas that I work in are rural, they're agrarian people. The people who stayed in their homes did so for the most part because of a very, very close bond with their land. Um, and I had multiple women when I was there last autumn warning me not to eat mushrooms that were picked in Harkovskar Oblast that year um, because there were too many because there were too many dead Russian bodies in the forests 
And so the mushrooms would be contaminated. The land was contaminated. It could no longer be used. I'm not, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how much truth there is in this. I don't know whether this would actually contaminate the mushrooms. I don't know if the Russian bodies actually were left in the forest or whether they were collected. But what is very clear is that this got deep into people's psyches, that they no longer feel like their land is their own. They feel that their land is contaminated. And that contamination is partly the very real, literal contamination by mines, um, but is also a more, I don't know if conceptual is the right word, but I don't know if superstitious is the right word either. I don't want to sound like I'm undermining these fears um, because they are obviously very, very real. Um, but for the sake of me not thinking of a better word, these superstitions around what exists in the forest now, around this land now being dirty, now being filled with death. Um, and so I just think on on every level, whilst liberation brings so much joy and it brings freedom to people, um, it is the start. It's not an end in and of itself. Um, and being able to go and work in these villages is the greatest honour of my life to meet the most brave, courageous people in probably in the entire world who have been through such horrors but have stood their ground saying, we are not going to leave our homes, this is our homes. And this, you know, what one woman said to me, you know, this, this village, her logic while the Russians were in her village was that her village would stay a Ukrainian village until the last Ukrainian had left. And so she was not going to leave because once she left, it would become a Russian village. Um, and so that, you know, these, these individuals with their mammoth bravery, but also with this mammoth trauma is, you know, that's the reality of, of liberation. And what's very sad in the areas that I work is that in, you know, in if you're in Zaporizhia and your village is liberated, the hope is that Russians will keep being pushed further back and soon you will be entirely surrounded by Ukraine. If you're in the north of Harkovska Oblast and your village is liberated, that's great, but Russia is still 10 kilometers north of you and there's nothing you can do about that. They're going to keep shelling over the border. And that is also a massive worry in these areas, especially amongst the kind of local officials is that they're never going to be properly repopulated because people are always going to be too scared to live that close to Russia. And there's, you know, unless some kind of demilitarized zone is put in place within Russia, they're always going to be within artillery distance. S-300s are always going to be able to hit them before the air raid, sign, air raid sounds, and there's nothing they can do about that. And even conventional artillery, sort of a low-grade stuff, is still a threat. And this this is the last question, really, but it's 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 it, it, it's another difficult one, I think. And that is that as Ukrainian physical victory on the battlefield becomes an ever more realistic prospect, and that includes the liberation of the South Crimea, and then afterwards, I was would expect sort of Donbass. What you've described here is the taint, the physical taint and defilement of the land, but also the psychological uh, sort of taint. Um, those are going to remain for a long time, but also as physical victory and liberation happens, there rightly will be a clamour for not just reparations, but actual real justice for what's being done. And the fear 
has to be that both the physical taint of the land and the sense of injustice will not be satisfied or, or may continue for decades without being fully resolved. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree, and I don't I don't know what the solution is. I mean, partly the solution. I mean, the solution to the injustice is that there has to be massive international criminal proceedings against not just Putin, not just Shoigu, but against every single soldier who went into Ukraine, because in the end, they are the ones who committed this defilement. This is not a kind of conventional idea of war where. So, I mean, obviously invading a country is always wrong, but it's not even that they just invaded and stepped in and took somewhere and then just stood there. They invaded, kidnapped people, tortured people, raped people, looted. They, every, there, there are so many crimes being committed in every single one of these areas, and there has to be justice for each of these people. For every single person who has been killed as a result of this war must have justice for their death. And that includes both the people who are killed directly by it and the many, many people who aren't counted in the tallies of the dead because they died from their hearts just giving out under shelling. You know, I've met countless people whose husbands and whose children died of heart attacks under shelling. And I think that what the what the international community has to understand is that if these people don't get justice, then some of them, not all of them, but some of them will feel a need to try and take some justice into their own hands. If you want to be able to ever have some kind of peace with Russia, first there has to be justice for Ukraine. Um, in terms of the land, you know, the demining is going to, the demining is something practical which can be done, but it will take decades. Um, and I think it's very good that work is starting now at Harp. We're starting to work with the deminers in Kharkiv to support them with equipment, support them with drones, especially so that people don't have to go and seek the mines themselves. They can do it through drones and hopefully save some lives and some limbs through doing that. Um, but the emotional disconnect from the land, that the land now feels contaminated, I don't know how you deal with that. But what I do know is that people are already trying. And in some of the villages that we work, the village administrations are actively having kind of gardening days where they're getting the people who remain in the village to come together and plant things together and kind of re-beautify their village. Um, and that is something really amazing. And that's something really important. And I hope that that sort of very low level, local scale, psychological support will help people to reconnect with these areas. And, you know, people are, despite these places being so close to the border, for the most part, people are coming back. And so they might not be coming back to the same kind of place they left. They might be coming back with a new sense of defi defilement. But the connection to the home and to the land is still there, thank God, to some extent. And I hope through the work of these local administrations to reconnect people to the land that will keep happening um it just absolutely has to be done in conjunction with very practical demining taking place at the same time there's no point reconnecting people to the land if they go and try and garden and then a mine blows up in their face um so you know it's always having to keep these two things happening at once the psychological and the practical um and you know ukraine 
this isn't new. Ukrainians know this. They are doing it. Um, and I'm just very happy to be able to support them in doing so in the small way that I can and be so honoured to be able to work with these people who know their communities so well and know exactly what they need. Well, what you're doing is extraordinary, uh, actually. It's inspirational, courageous and inspiring. We're going to put links to... Uh, both the articles you've written, but also to your charity uh, in the description. I strongly encourage people to reach out and ask how they may be able to help support the work you're doing. It's absolutely incredible. And I'm very grateful to you for, for sharing some of your insight, especially the more painful ones. It's difficult, I know, to talk about some of this stuff, but I'm so extremely grateful that you've been able to do that today on the channel. So much for having me. It's been really nice to speak to you today.